Hey, you're listening to Clumsy Theosis, a Catholic podcast that explores topics within the Catholic faith to help us deepen our spiritual lives, own our relationship with the Lord, and strengthen His church. Hey, everybody, what's up? Thanks for joining me today. My name is Rochelle Lucero. I'm the host and the creator of the Clumsy Theosis podcast, and this is the place to be if you are interested in answering your call to transform the world by letting the Lord transform you on this brilliant adventure called Theosis. And a special thank you goes out to Tony, Tony, Tony for his donation to Clumsy Theosis Ministries. Tony included a message with his donation telling me that this podcast has been so impactful to his life that he's planning to send a donation monthly. That's huge. Thank you, Tony. Now, you might want to know how Tony made his donation. He went to clumsytheosis.net and he clicked the donate button in the menu. Just saying in case you feel so inclined to make a donation yourself. Donations from you all are what make it possible for me to continue to bring quality content to you. So please, if your life has been positively impacted by the work I'm doing here, please prayerfully consider making a donation at clumsytheosis.net. Your donations always go back into the podcast. So pray about it. And if the Lord gives you the go ahead, visit clumsytheosis.net and click the donate button. I will appreciate it more than I could possibly put into words. So let's get down to business. All right, so this is our final episode on the Trinitarian and Christological heresies of the early church. The remainder of the heresies we'll cover in this episode are all Christological heresies. All of them except for one have to do with the hypostatic union. Hypostatic union sounds fancy, but don't be scared, it's not that bad. Other than the fact that it's the depth of the mystery of the incarnation, I think that we'll do just fine. Okay, now the term hypostatic union was formally introduced to the deposit of faith in 451 at the Ecumenical Council of Chalcedon. Some people say Chalcedon, tomato, tomato. It was introduced to define and to delineate what was revealed to us by God about the nature of Christ. Namely, that the one person, Jesus Christ, is truly God and truly man. He has a human nature and a divine nature. Hypostasis literally means that which lies beneath as a basis or a foundation. So the union of the two equal natures, the divine and the human, these are the foundation of Christ. And why is this important? St. Athanasius summed it up perfectly for me, at least, when he said, that which has not been assumed cannot be healed. That is to say, by the divine nature of the Son of God, assuming human nature at the incarnation, all that makes up our human nature, all of that has been healed, sanctified, and uplifted. This is what makes the human soul capable to pursue theosis and to inherit eternity in the kingdom of heaven. Kind of important. Now, if the church fell into any of the heresies that we're going to cover today, the radiance of those gifts would be dimmed and the message of salvation would be tarnished because, well, basically it wouldn't be the true message of salvation. Also, for our more immediate-ish purposes, knowing what the hypostatic union is and is not will help you to have a deeper spiritual participation during the season of Advent, which is right around the corner. Advent is the time where we prepare our hearts for the coming of Jesus, 
for the incarnation of God. Now, remember that all that we're going to cover today directly affects the incarnation of God. We left off in our last episode with the condemnation of Arianism and semi-Arianism at the Council of Nicaea. Now, that was in the beginning of the 4th century. In the late part of the 4th century and the early part of the 5th century, two heresies arose out of the question of morality and sin, especially when it came to the nature of Christ. One of these heresies was called Apollinarianism, and the other was Pelagianism. In the 5th century, people were scrutinizing the two natures of the Son of God in very interesting, yeah, we're just going to say interesting ways. (laughs) You have Nestorianism that claimed that the two natures of Christ were so distinct that they actually were two separate people. Then you get Monophysitism. Sorry, I'm just getting tongue-tied. The Monophysites rebutted that Christ was one person, which we know is correct, but he was also one nature. And they had some weird ways of justifying how the divine and human natures of the Son of God, how they could coexist in one nature. And when I say weird, obviously I mean heretical, but they were quite imaginative. Then later on in the 7th century, we get the Monothelites who taught that the Son of God only had one will, and that was a divine will. He did not have a human will. I think all of this is super interesting stuff, but like with all things in the faith, I think it's more fun in community. So take a moment and grab a friend, get them to listen to this episode or to this series. Pull out your phone right now and ping them however you want, text message, email, instant message, whatever and send them the info and a link to this episode. Okay, so let's run through these heresies in more detail. I just wanted to give you a big picture overview. Remember back to our last episode, the 4th century, the First Ecumenical Council of Nicaea in 325, and this was the council that condemned the Bishop Arius for denying the divinity of the Son of God. Also at the Council of Nicaea, the Nicene Creed was formulated, and this was at that time the end-all and be-all of what we believed as a faith, especially when it came to the Trinity and to Christ. And so Apollinaris, he wanted to stay true to the teachings of Nicaea, and he was a big advocate of the divinity of the Son of God. But he did this at the expense of the humanity of Christ. Apollinaris kind of did some mental math and uh, concluded, yeah, one complete God plus one complete man doesn't add up to one Jesus Christ. And more importantly for him, he thought, you know, if all of the attributes of God, as well as all of the attributes of man are contained in Christ, then there's a juxtaposition. These two entities, human and divine, they have contrasting moral effects. And basically what that means is Apollinaris knew that humans are liable to sin. Now, for him, sin stems from the rational human mind because sin is a choice, whereas divinity is perfect. Now, since these two contrasting minds, the one that is liable to sin and the one that is perfect, since they can't coexist, he believed that the human mind and its inclination to sin was substituted by the divine mind of Christ. In getting rid of this weakness of human nature, Apollinaris said, you know what? Christ is now safe to not mess things up and our salvation is now secure. So today we can look back 
even just at scripture. And we can see how ridiculous this assertion is, especially when we read passages in scripture like John 1.14, which talks about the word becoming flesh, and Philippians 2.7, where Paul says about Christ that he was made in the image and likeness of man and in the habit of man, meaning that he had human nature. And that would include a human mind, right? Apollinaris was condemned for teaching that the Son of God only had a divine mind and therefore one nature, which was a divine nature. He was condemned for this teaching at the Ecumenical Council of Constantinople in 381 because we know that Christ is truly God and truly man. So he has a divine mind and a human mind. One does not trump the other. Now, as silly as Apollinaris's Harry, Harry, as silly as the heresy that Apollinaris taught might sound to us today, because like I said, we know that Christ had both a human mind and a divine mind. It's silly to us today, but at that time it got people thinking. And just like Apollinaris's heresy began with him examining sin and the human propensity to sin, Pelagius did the same thing. So Pelagius flat out said original sin doesn't exist. And because of this, we also don't need to have infant baptism because it's not necessary for salvation since original sin doesn't exist. In fact, the only thing necessary for salvation, according to Pelagius, was for us to have a strong human will to avoid sin. Now, if you didn't feel like your human will was strong enough, you could strengthen it by ascetic practices, by just living a life of asceticism. What his belief comes down to is this. It's that man is able to attain salvation for himself. Grace wasn't necessary for salvation, nor was grace a gift that was freely given from God. And the only reason that sin existed in the world, and this is kind of funny, was because the first sin of Adam in the garden set a bad example for humanity. And all of us sinners for all of time, we've just been copying this bad example. And when it came to Christ, well, his assistance wasn't necessary for our salvation either. In fact, the only redemption that Christ offered humanity was limited to two things. One is instruction. So think like the parables and the sermons that Jesus gave in scripture, right? He was giving us instruction. And the second thing was example. So by the stories that we hear about the way that uh, Christ lived in scripture, those were setting an example for us how to live morally and how to live acceptably to God. The philosophic problem here, and this is a huge problem, the philosophic problem is that Pelagianism implies that there's no interior sanctification of the soul. For Pelagius, Christ just came to show us how to act and how to think. Pelagianism was condemned at the Council of Carthage. Now, this was a smaller council. It was in 418. So because this this heresy persisted, it was brought before the Ecumenical Council of Ephesus in 431. And it was, that condemnation was also ratified. So it was condemned again at the Ecumenical Council of Ephesus in 431. Now, while Pelagius was running amok in the fifth century, Nestorius, he was the patriarch of Constantinople and he was still fighting the Arians. I mean, the Arians are like the bad penny of heresies. They just don't ever seem to go away. Nestorius overcorrected the Arians to prove his point, and in doing so, he landed himself too far off of the mark and into heresy himself. Recall that the Arians said that the Son of God only had one nature, 
and that was the human nature. And the Son of God didn't exist until the incarnation. And because of this, he was a creature of God and therefore not God himself. Nestorius, rightly so, was very adamant about the two natures of Christ. But he overemphasized this point so much that he basically suggested that these two natures were two distinct persons instead of natures. And this seems like a pretty big leap. So how did he get here? It all began with the word Theotokos. This is a title used for Mary. Theo meaning God and Tokos referring to her bearing the Son of God. So together, Theotokos means God-bearer. We still primarily use this title for Mary in the Eastern Catholic churches as well as in the Eastern Orthodox churches. Nestorius, he didn't like the title Theotokos because remember, the Arians said that the Son of God didn't exist until the Incarnation, meaning that he didn't exist for all time with the Father. So hearing Theotokos, he thought it suggested that God had a beginning, and that beginning would have been when Mary bore God into the world. In his view, the title Theotokos seemed to support the Arian heresy. So, to remedy this, Nestorius coined the title Christotokos, meaning Christ-bearer. So, he said that Mary was the Christ-bearer, not the God-bearer. But there's a problem with this. The title Christotokos implies that only the human nature of Christ was in Mary's womb while she was pregnant. And the divine nature of God, which existed with the Father before all ages, was not in her womb. See, this split the two natures of the Son of God. What Nestorius proposed isn't possible because mothers don't give birth to natures. They give birth to people. See, this would make the human nature of Christ and the divine nature of Christ so distinct, so separate, they would be separate persons. This, like all the other big scary heresies out there, was settled at an ecumenical council. And in this case, it was the Council of Ephesus in 431. And this was the same council where Pelagianism was also condemned. Now, Nestorius and his teachings, they were condemned at this ecumenical council and the title Theotokos was upheld But I must say that Nestorius, it turns out he was not a heretic, but all those people who subscribed to the Nestorian heresy, they were in fact heretics. It's a little confusing. Let me explain. So apparently Nestorius believed what we actually profess today. The only thing is he did not articulate himself very well, even though his beliefs were sound. He just didn't explain them in the correct way. So what he said was actually incorrect and just heretical. Everybody who listened to him and believed what he said, they were believing things that were heretical. When he died, when it was all squared away, he died in communion with the church. So he's not a heretic, whereas the people who followed what he said, they were heretics. So, I mean, if you're looking for a name for your next child or a pet, I mean, Nestorius is technically on the table since he's not a heretic. I mean, it might raise some eyebrows, but it's, it's a viable option. But, I mean, this instance just goes to show how powerful language can be. In response to the Nestorian heresy arises another heresy. These were the Monophysites, and they overcorrected the Nestorian heresy. Anytime you overcorrect from a heresy, you're, you're nine times out of 10 going to end up creating your own heresy. Now, at this point, I feel like, you know, we're playing 
heresy ping pong, one nature's two natures, one nature's two natures, it's just going back and forth. The Monophysites, they believed in one nature of God, mono meaning one, and physis, I believe that's how you pronounce it, means nature. So that's one nature. Whereas um, those who believe in the two natures of the Son of God, us, Orthodox, small o, correct, believing and thinking Christians, we are what you would refer to as duophysites, duo meaning two. So two natures. We believe in the two natures of Christ. Now, the Monophysites, yeah, there were different ways that they uh, explained their view um, about how both the human and the divine nature could coexist as one nature. Um, some of them make more sense than others, but I still think that they're all kind of silly. Um, but let's take a look at a couple of them just for fun. Now, remember um, Apollinaris from the top of this episode? He was um, an Ophicite because for him, remember, Christ's nature was like a hybrid where the divine mind took the place of the human mind. Like it, it trumped the human mind and so therefore took the place of the mind in Christ. Another popular Monophysite was Eutychus. And for him, the two natures had fused into one. So he basically said that just like, a, you know, a drop of water is absorbed into the ocean, so too does the human nature absorb into the divine nature. And to settle this controversy about the natures of Christ, enter the Ecumenical Council of 451 called the Council of Chalcedon. And this is a very, very important council. I mean, all of them are important, but this one particularly because it coined the term hypostatic union, which I mentioned at the um, beginning of this episode, because hypostatic union was used to define the nature of Christ and put all of these heresies to bed even though some of them did not go as quietly into the night as others. In the 7th century, we do get another heresy that goes after the hypostatic union, and that would be the monothelites who tried to put one aspect of the divine nature against another aspect of the human nature of the Son of God. So we saw Apollinaris try to do this with the mind in the 4th century. Now the monothelites were trying to do this with the will. So mono we know means one and thelite refers to the will. So they said that Christ only had a divine will because, hey, I mean, divinity trumps humanity every time in these heresies, except Arianism. This heresy was an attempt at a compromise between the Monophysites, who said that Christ only had one nature, which was a divine nature, and the teaching of the hypostatic union that was given at the Council of Chalcedon two centuries earlier. Because, you know, of course, some heresies die slower than others. The Monophysites, they kind of held on to their belief. The Monothelite heresy was poo-pooed at the Sixth Ecumenical Council, which was the Council of Constantinople III in 680. So we've gone through all of our Christological heresies for today. I just want to make it really clear what all of this means. You know, I know sometimes we get through this information and we're kind of excited to learn new things. And then we stop at the end and we're like, wait, what does this mean? What does this have to do with the big picture? How do I apply this to my life, to my interior life? So I want to address that. We've been called to communion with God and we find this communion in prayer. In prayer, we are free, and I mean, not just free, we're also encouraged by God to learn about 
and to get to know the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But this freedom, it can be scary or just intimidating, you know, or you just you just have too many choices, you know, like I can relate to that. And so this makes me think of a study about children at play. And when I think of prayer, I think of children at play, like we are God's children that we are at play with him. Now, this study is about a playground. It's on like the top of a mountain or like a plateau. And the children were allowed to play anywhere they wanted up there, all the way to the edges of the cliffs, but they didn't. Instead, they stayed in a close cluster in the center of the playground. They were afraid to explore. Now, later, a chain link fence was added to that same playground. And when the children came to play, they ran around with reckless abandon to all the edges of this cliff without care. We want guidelines and boundaries and parameters. I mean, even if they're like way far out there, we are comforted by knowing that they exist, that they're there for our safety, for our security. And this is how I feel when I learn more about the faith, uh, when I learn more about what God has revealed to us about himself. I feel my prayer area, as it were, it expands when I learn more because when I learn more, I know the the safe area, the truth area. And when I do that, I'm free to explore and to wonder and question and chew on the truth. This is what we're encouraged to do. It's nice to know the definitions, to memorize the definitions of things that we believe, but it's also paramount to our salvation, to our um, intimacy with God to do more than that, to explore and to have intimacy and relationship. And we can only do this through exploring to, you know, running to the edges and asking the hard questions and learning the answers from the source himself, you know, making them our own. So when it comes to the hypostatic union, you know, the nature of Christ, realize that it's a look inside the mystery of the word made flesh. The hypostatic union explains how the eternal son of God became incarnate. He, he assumed our human nature without losing any of his divinity. And I mean, this doesn't mean that Jesus Christ is only part God and part man, nor does it imply that he is the result of a confused mixture of the divine and the human. You know, Christ's human nature is like our nature in all things except for sin. And the reason that is, is because his human nature is perfectly ordered by his divine nature. And that's what we're called to. We're called to that perfect ordering of our nature. Because Christ is like us in all things except for sin, because he's perfectly, his human nature is perfectly ordered and he's in union with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is, he's true God and he's true man. And for this reason, he is the one and the only mediator between us and God, which is wild to think about. And in the catechism, there's a section on the incarnation and particularly paragraphs 456 to 460, they answer the question, why did the word become flesh? And there we're given four answers. One reason is in order to save us by reconciling us with God. Two is so that we might know God's love. Three, to be our model of holiness. And four, to make us partakers of the divine nature, which is theosis. I encourage everyone to read these paragraphs in the catechism. Uh, paragraphs 456 to 460, and think about whether or not you know someone 
that you can read these sections of the catechism with and and share with them. You can do it by yourself, but it's always more fun when you can do it with other people. The catechism is free online. Whenever I look for something, I always just type in the word I'm looking for and then type CCC after it. So for this, I would probably type incarnation space CCC, and then it would show up as probably one of the top two or three search engine results. This is great food to meditate on, especially as we approach Advent and the mystery of the incarnation. I hope you liked today's episode, and if you liked it, would you share it with a friend? I'd really love to get the word about clumsy theosis out to as many people as possible so that we all can be a part of bringing the kingdom of heaven here to earth, you know, transforming the world. All right, our next episode, we're going to talk about prayer. Uh, Two different approaches that are equally important in the church. One involves an emptying and a quietness of self and the other an active imaginative approach. I'm really excited about this. And until our next episode, if we're not friends in real life or online, please consider reaching out to me on social media. I'm very, very easy to find on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Clumsy Theosis. Follow me there. Even if you just want to be a little bit nosy about what I'm up to and what the Lord is doing in my life. Um, Also, you can direct message me. I get a number of direct messages. And I always respond. All right, everyone, until our next episode, peace out. Thank you for tuning in to Clumsy Theosis. I'm so happy that you've been able to hang out. If you want to learn more about Clumsy Theosis, you are more than welcome to visit my website, clumsytheosis.net. From clumsytheosis.net, you will also be able to contact me if you're interested in booking me as a speaker or if you're just feeling generous and you'd like to make a donation. Remember that together we can transform the world by letting the Lord transform us.